0: This is Academes, a podcast about women in academia, living the dream, or are we? To Academes Podcast, Dr. Meena Krishnamurthy. Will you tell us about your discipline and institutional affiliations and share a bit about your research? Uh,
1: yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, so, I am a philosopher, so, I'm in the philosophy program at the University, at uh, Queen's University in Canada. Um, I also have, um, kind of have some involvement in what will soon be the new black studies minor, okay. which will start as of fall next year.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And what kind of things do you write about or research?
1: Good question. People <laughs> ask me that a lot, partly because my work is a little bit all over the place. So, um, I think of myself as a kind of generalist. I mean, I do a lot of different things in social and political philosophy, um, But I think I would say there are like three questions at the heart of my work. One is sort of what are the values that justify democracy? So why is democracy important? What kinds of values do we think that democracy encapsulates or best expresses? Um, So that's kind of a fundamental like ethical question. And then a lot of my work has also been thinking about Um, maybe how certain kinds of institutional practices and policies don't uh, express those democratic values that we care a lot about. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, um, most of my work has been thinking about something, about the question of how do we realize these values? So it's like, we know what the values are. We know what democratic and just institutions should look like, but how do we transition from unjust or undemocratic institutions to more democratic ones? And that's kind of what's led me to focus on social movements, Mm -hmm. thinking about the civil rights movement, movement in particular, um, and how those were kind of democratic movements and kind of what the aims were of those
0: movements. So I'm um, calling you from the U.S. in December of 2019. We're in the midst of an impeachment process and with the um, presidential runs in full swing for next year's elections. And so when you talk about democracy and institutions, it makes me think of American politics. Is your work intentionally topical or you're just doing the work you're doing and (laughs) then there's just the world and democracy doing its thing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, (laughs) I think, it's, I think maybe it's both things in a certain way. So I think what motivated me, um, well, part of it was like a disenchantment. I was kind of working on international justice and international institutions. And I had been doing a little bit of work mm-hmm. with a program affiliated with the United Nations Development Program. And I kind of saw the inner workings of these institutions and I became very disenchanted with top-down models for political change. And so then I was like, okay, like, well, what I really think maybe makes a difference is probably democratic social movements, ground up movements. And then I wanted to kind of think more about the mechanics. So in some ways, that's really rooted in the world and maybe a more global perspective. But then I moved to the United States and um, I found myself in a kind of like interesting position of being in a liberal, a white liberal college town, uh, very honestly. And so I was really Confounded by a lot of people with like stated values of racial justice, equity, inclusion, diversity, all the things that we all care about, but then a kind of lack of political action. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work, um, is really has been thinking about what King was saying about the white moderates. So on the one hand have all these wonderful, beautiful moral commitments, but then aren't living up to those commitments in terms of action. And so in that way, it is very rooted in thinking about my own lived experience. But the reason I say that it's maybe in some sense abstracts from that is that I think a question I've been really faced with and one that I'm thinking through now is whether what King had to say then and what worked in the day of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. in the early, the early parts of the movement, whether that really applies today or not, maybe we've gone so far past um, to, you know, to, to that moment that maybe things that worked in the past don't work anymore. Yeah. And that's kind of something I'm still thinking through. I love
0: that. Maybe we can step back and I could ask you a little bit about, you're a background. Um, you're a Canadian scholar, and you've studied and worked in both the U.S. and Canada, um, and you're one of our first transnational scholars who has that context of working in different countries. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe your most recent professional move where you did move from that institution in the U.S. back to Canada?
1: Right. Yeah. So I'm a Canadian citizen, but my training was sort of in Canada for my undergrad, and my master's, and then I moved to the U.S. And then more recently I moved back. But in between that, I kind of had a few back and forths in between all of that. So at least for Canadian standards, sort of w- conventional wisdom is like, if you want a job in Canada, you have to go to the United States <laughs> and do your degree there. Okay. Um, because there, there are very, very few jobs. Like, you know, in the philosophy market in Canada, there might be three or four jobs a year, wow. maybe a job in your area once every, few years. So it's not like you can say, um, you know, I want a job in Canada. It's going to happen tomorrow. It might take a bit of planning to actually get back home. Um, so I think initially I moved out of Canada for pragmatic reason, which is like, I wanted to be able to come home. And then I was, um, I was in the US for grad school at Cornell, and then I got a job. Luckily, I was really lucky. There was only one job uh, in my year that I was on the job oh, market no. at the University of Manitoba. And it, yeah, in and ethics, and I was lucky enough to get it. And that was a really great job. But then... Um, Then I moved back to the U.S. for strange reasons. Actually, I had a pretty severe brain injury and I didn't know if I was going to be back in academia or not. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try to get geographically as close to home as possible. So I'm from London, Ontario, which is not that far from Detroit. So being at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor meant I was two and a half hours away from my family. And the thought was, if anything terrible happened, then my parents could get there or my mother in law could get there in a minute if I needed support with the family.
0: So you moved to the U.S. Um, to be closer to home in Canada. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly because Canada's a big country Winnipeg yes. is like a you know uh, quite a far like if you were to drive it'd be like 24 hours yeah. whereas you know this was a two hour two and a half hour drive um, but then more recently I mean there are always a lot of reasons behind any move but I we had always had a long-term plan of coming back to Canada mm-hmm. uh, for lots of reasons yeah. and uh, you know some of the reasons are just like financial like okay I think I'd have a better retirement and a better pension yeah. um, there's also something really nice values wise to be back home in a country where everybody has access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's not a debate. It's already happened. Um, and we're, you know, that question is like just becoming a live question. It's a well-established practice. And there's something really nice about coming home to a place where you know that everybody has access to some of those basic goods. Um, we also have an 11 year old and I think well, when I thought a lot about looking at a lot of the students, I mean, the University of Michigan is a prestigious place with a lot of really great, smart kids. But looking at how stressed out they were, we had mm-hmm. sort of thought in the long run, we weren't sure that we wanted our daughter to go to college in the U.S., yeah. at least for her undergraduate studies. Take the pressure off in Canada. It is competitive, but it's nothing like the way the kind of stress that that people kind of go Which, through so um, in the United States. Could I? So a lot of personal reasons? Yeah. I'm yeah, could I ask? But I was going to say maybe some professional reasons yeah. might be. Sorry, it might be that um I just felt like too. My work has always been very critical of the United States, and I just felt like I would be more able to do the kind of work that I wanted to do with less pressure back home in Canada. Yeah. So I mean, and also I would say the tenure process in Canada is much more humane. I think in many ways mm-hmm. that I mean that's what Canadians will tell you mm-hmm. uh, that it's you know much more humane than the process in the United States at competitive or elite programs.
0: Can you tell me what the tenure process is like there? to hear?
1: Good question, because I'm not going up for tenure. I'm on an accelerated clock, but I don't go up for tenure until next summer. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things is that um, I think well, people, well, here's what people will tell me, because a lot of people who go to the U.S. come back to Canada if they can. And I think what people will say, the difference is that the criteria for tenure here are much more explicit. So mm-hmm. you probably know, like, this debate comes up, like, should we have explicit criteria? Should we have a rubric for tenure? Yeah. We typically don't in the U.S. Uh, in most places or many places. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Canada, because of collective agreements and unions, all faculty are unionized mm-hmm. in Canada. So the way that the tenure process happens is already different because of the... Um, because of because of the collective agreement. So A, the, there's a difference, like the, the standards are more clear and explicit. B, there's more transparency. Like my understanding is that here, you'll actually get to see all the letters that are written on your behalf. It's not just this like invisible process that happens behind a magic curtain. Mm-hmm. You have a chance to respond to those things early on in the process. You don't have to wait for an appeal. If there's an issue, you get to respond right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so fundamentally the process is, it seems to be pretty different, I think. That's so interesting.
0: Can I also circle back? Are you open to talking about your brain injury?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've written a lot about it publicly, so I'm happy to talk about
0: it. I've known a number of academics with either brain injuries or brain cancers, and it's just really interesting for us because so much of our livelihood is about thinking and processing and being intellectually um, engaged and even being on computer screens and things. So I'm interested in, like, that process for you, um, what the injury was like, what the symptoms were like and how you've transitioned.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, as an academic, it was probably, I mean, one of the most difficult things I had to go through. I had about an eight-month process where I had no recovery at all, which Mm -hmm. essentially meant I was in a dark room uh, laying down flat, not really able to talk with people, not really able to engage with the world, you know, for about eight months. Um, And then, weirdly enough, it was actually my insurance agent who I was working with for the claim, the, like, long-term disability claim that actually advised me to meet with this woman who was training as an ostracist. Mm-hmm. but was an, ale- an athletic therapist who'd done some training around concussion recovery and that was really like the biggest turning point I had met with a million other experts but meeting with this pro- person and the kind of rehab that they prescribed was pretty life-changing um and so as a result of going through this like therapy um you know I had basically had vision problems I had balance problems I had problems with my working memory um there was just a lot you know, going on So, but like it's around seven or eight months or so I started making a bit of a turnaround.
0: And where were you at that point and what position were you in at that point?
1: Yeah, I was at the university of Manitoba. So I was in Winnipeg as an assistant professor and, um, yeah. How did, and then I actually like had my, my interview in Michigan, I think just shortly after that. So it, I think had I not started that therapy, I wouldn't even have been able to do the yeah. interview.
0: How, how did um, the university of Manitoba deal with your disability and your leave?
1: Again, having the union like behind my back was amazing because they helped me negotiate. So initially, I think we all didn't really know how to handle the injury. And I was sort of encouraged to try my hand at teaching within the first couple of te- yeah. weeks. And that did not go well. And it started a big snowball for me. So, um, But I did work with the union very carefully after that. And then I worked with the big health team. So because the healthcare system is like very rigorous, I felt really well supported by a big team of people that I was kind of working with medically. And then the union really had my
0: back. That's incredible. And the
1: administrative staff. So I think between the union and the administrative staff, I was like really, really lucky.
0: That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Um, It sounds like a scary experience. And so it's probably helpful for people who are facing those kind of things to hear about a good situation and a good outcome of somebody getting support and getting (laughs) the therapy they need.
1: Yeah. And it can come from strange places. Like I don't know how people feel like about alternative therapies or even the fact that it came from an insurance caseworker. Mm-hmm. I thought that was maybe the strangest things because I'd clearly been meeting with neurologists and doctors and physiotherapists, but it was actually talking to this person who said, I know all this person who's been working with, a. I work with like a lot of traumatic brain injury people and this person's had a lot of success. Like sometimes it just takes a random connection. Yeah. Um, And the other thing maybe worth like thinking about too, if you have a brain injury and for somebody or a health problem when you're on the job market is how do you deal with doing an interview? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very, and I think this really is kind of dependent on what your health condition is and how open you want, transparent you want to be about it. In my case, there was no way to not be transparent about it because I was still in pretty rough shape by the time I did the interview at Michigan. So I was very open with the, Mm -hmm. the chair of the search committee and said like, these are the things I need. I need to arrive a day early. I need to have so many breaks during the day. I need to be able to keep to eat to keep my blood sugar up, Mm -hmm. all these things. Um, You know, I would need for the dinner that usually have after the interview talk. I needed a really quiet, dark, low stimulus place, etc. So I just made really clear what I would need to do the interview successfully. And if they wouldn't have been able to do it, I wouldn't have been able to have the interview probably at all.
0: That's really good for people to think about. I think people can be scared to ask for those things. And Yeah. So it's really helpful to have that modeled. And you talk about how rare some of the jobs in your field are in Canada specifically, but are they as rare and hard to get in the U.S. as well?
1: Well, being in the humanities, I mean, as you probably already know, I mean, I think the humanities in general have been hit hard in the last five to seven years. So I think when I initially was first on the job market in 2009, 2010, it was one of the very first years of the job market crash yeah. uh, in philosophy. And it is, and sometimes it's recovered, but it's still not great. It's actually really, I think it's really, really tough.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I think even more for you to You've successfully made moves. You've been kind of honest when you needed accommodations. Um, What do you, I think some people get really stressed and it can be kind of debilitating even to face a very tough job market. Uh, Do you have any advice or perspective or insights about what has made you be able to be kind of resilient in the face of of a pretty tough job market?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because I do think all the precarity is really what you know affects people's mental health when not knowing if you're going to get a job especially if you've been in grad school and put your whole life towards um, something and for us in the humanities it's not like we can step out into a consulting job or yeah. do something in the industry that just isn't typically I mean it's maybe more so the case now for philosophers than it used to be that you could go find a job doing something else mm-hmm. but that hasn't traditionally been true and there aren't clear pathways to things outside of academia so I think that you're right. That puts a lot of like pressure on people. And it is a very, very stressful experience. And I don't, I don't think there, I don't know that I have good ways of dealing with it. I think the thought, you know, is like all the obvious things have a good social support system, Mm -hmm. but that's really true. Have a group of friends that are hopefully that are at the same career stage as you and talk with them. And like, I think friendship is obviously the main thing, but honestly, something else I did right before I went on the job market is I started meditating Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference. I think had I not learned the skill of meditation, I think it would have been much more difficult.
0: Was that related to your brain injury or just a time in your life when you felt like that would be Mm. good to try?
1: I, it was actually after I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I did find like, I had a bit of a postpartum mood disorder. Mm-hmm. So I did have an anxiety d- that sort of disorder, maybe about, you know, that sort of yep. like two months after pregnancy postpartum. Um, and so my doctor at the time kind of recommended that I should just do a meditation class and see if it would help. And it really did. It was pretty, You've had, like, like, great help. because it became, yeah,
0: I think your insurance <laughs> adjuster, your <laughs> yeah. doctors like, you should meditate. Like these people are doing a good job.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in Ithaca, so I feel like maybe everybody was meditating at Cornell. I don't really know, but like, uh, so it could be the place that I was in. But I think I am, and I mean, women in general tend to be more proactive about asking people for resources and advice. So I think um, I was just someone like, okay, I'm not feeling great. Let me talk to a doctor. Let me see a therapist. And therapists, uh, you know, see what they have to say. Then take, do meditation, whatever it takes, Mm
0: -hmm. you know. Do you use any kind of app or anything? Do you have a special process?
1: Um, I have always really liked the meditations from Mark. It's a mindfulness awareness research center at UCLA. Okay. And Diana Winston does like some meditations from Mark and also the the Hammer Center. Okay. They're weekly. I don't know. Something about her in particular. I love her meditations. And it's often starts with a talk about the research behind mindfulness. And I find that as an academic, I find that really
0: useful. That's very so, like, yes, yeah. yeah, so I'll epidemic. I will find the academics in the best meditation practice. I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I guess I'll ask you a little bit about your work. So, you've already talked about the fact that you've done work on Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, political philosophy in regard to democracy, social movements, racial injustice, and also some work by Indian political thinkers um, in relation to democracy in that setting. Um, and so, I listened to you on my Asia podcast and talking about democracy and white moderates. Um, your work sounds fascinating. Um, what do you find engaging about it? Like how you've talked a little bit about how you kind of have shifted your research over time, but yeah, look, like what, what, yeah, like what, what do you love about your research?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I am someone who's really driven by arguments. So I think in my own family, we always talked politics and we always would have arguments. And I was always expected to come up with reasons for thinking what I was thinking. So I think in a way, that's what I'm doing as a philosopher. We're really interested in argument structures and justification and assessing the justification that people give for the positions they hold. So I still am really motivated by that. I want to think about, you know, what kinds of viewpoints and positions can be justified. And what are the obvious objections? How do we respond to them? So I think that project of analytic philosophy that's really engaged with arguments, argument structure, conceptual clarity is something that I'm just still really deeply invigorated by, despite the fact that I've been pretty critical of analytic philosophy as a discipline because it can be very exclusionary. Mm -hmm. I still am committed to the project behind analytic
0: philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about how the field can be exclusionary?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, well, in many ways, I think of philosophy primarily as a kind of method, which could be applied to almost anything, any question, any kind of uh, uh, like article or even a play or a piece of poetry. Many people don't really share that view. And there is a way where, um, well, I mean, philosophy has a a so-called canon, which essentially has long consisted of white men from the so-called West. Um, and so I think I think that's starting to change. And I think when I had first gotten in philosophy, so maybe say a decade ago, in some ways, those conversations were just happening. And I was pretty outspoken about some of my own criticisms of the discipline and many other people were. And I think finally now there have been so many of us that you're seeing the actual change where people are uncovering hidden figures, whether it's women in the history mm-hmm. of philosophy and, and paying more attention to their work. But I think one of it is just that we have this canon that we've stuck to very strictly and um It's very, it's strange, but in political philosophy, I actually feel in some ways that it's almost been the most stagnant. Mm. So we see in like the history of philosophy, people who have long worked on Plato are now talking about, you know, other, uh, you know, or or other kinds of historical figures are now talking about women. Mm -hmm. We don't see in contemporary political philosophy as much, I don't think, an open mind to a diverse kind of canon. And I don't know what explains that. I'm not really sure because you would think that political philosophy would be the most open minded, but it actually isn't.
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't really know. I think I think part of it might actually be that, you know, I'm like trying to think of like the diplomatic way to (laughs) say this. I think a lot of it is we look that that, you know, philosophy in general, there is kind of pedigree driven. And I think the most prestigious journals in political philosophy are. I mean, as any prestigious journal is, they can be somewhat stagnant because they're somewhat status quo. Again, I think this is starting to change. But I think for a long time, it was sort of the same people publishing in the same journals, the same kinds of topics. And I think in the last couple of years in particular, I've started to see an opening up in fields very uh, close to political philosophy. So my hope is like that will start changing in political philosophy as well.
0: Do you think philosophy thinks of itself as a progressive field or not? Like, is it kind of a progressive field, reactionary field? How does it Think about itself.
1: It's actually... A- hilarious because i would think if you talk to most people outside of philosophy who know anything about philosophy they will tell you that it's actually a very conservative field yeah. but then people within philosophy because there is a really kind of progressive left-leaning disposition i think within philosophy that they'll think of philosophy as very progressive so i think it depends on what you mean mm-hmm. um for example there are a lot of philosophers who probably identify as being social democrats or socialists and that that might be one of the more common leanings of philosophy again i don't have the data to back mm-hmm. this up but just from conjecture um But on the other hand, if you've seen, for example, people working on race or gender and how prevalent their work has been in the field or traditionally how they've been treated in philosophy, I think people would say it's less progressive. So it Mm -hmm. might depend. It might be an issue by issue kind of kind of answer.
0: Maybe it cycles back a little bit to what you were saying about Michigan and being in the U.S. in towns that are like white, that view themselves as very progressive, but. Where you didn't feel like that matched their commitment to their actions and the ways that political life was active and people were living. I don't want to misrepresent you, but could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So I think what's interesting is I think what was jarring for me wasn't um, was actually more just like the city of Ann Arbor and mm-hmm. people of Ann Arbor. I, I think that was actually I think like, you know, being I think it was my integration into the schooling system mm-hmm. with my child being in school and kind of interacting with parents who were supposed to be so progressive. They're in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is this really progressive college. Team, but then actually we like very conservative a particular kind of not in my backyard yeah. kind of way sure I want these progressive policies but they don't need to happen here do they we don't need to actually try to do things to bring diverse students into our schools or make their families comfortable um you know so I think th- those those were the things that were jarring to me Michigan as an institution I think is really complicated mm-hmm. because I think in many ways I felt that at least the people I knew sort of best in the administration were very progressive. And I I think we're trying their best to do, you know, what was right. But I also think being in the Midwest, you're like geographically kind of isolated in a certain kind of way. So in a way, The way that people approach their discipline sometimes to me felt a bit old-fashioned, but I think it's because it's not like you're in New York or somewhere where you're interacting with academics from all different stripes all the time from all over. Um, It's very isolated. People aren't coming to Michigan as much maybe between November and March or February because of the weather. So there are a lot of things that I think could explain what's happening. I mean, the Midwest has its own kind of polite politics, so I think – you're not going to see like aggressive or hostile racism. That just wouldn't be consistent with the culture of the Midwest. Um, So I think there are just like a lot of strange things going on in the Midwest that might explain my experience in Ann Arbor, but it it was an interesting contrast to being in Ithaca, Mm -hmm. which, which is another small college town, predominantly white, Mm -hmm. but the politics of the town were pretty actively
0: different. I think a lot about, Mm -hmm where to live. I think, you know, geography and where to live and what kind of jobs you apply for can be a big thing for a lot of academics. And there's all these trade-offs. So I know people who live in big cities, but it's so expensive and their quality of life is really hard. I know people sometimes want to be near family. Uh, I myself live in a college town and there's something very comfortable about it, but a lot of the themes that you talked about also resonate. So, um, Yeah, just I think kind of that idea about where do I live, what is this place like, um, something I think about a lot and a lot of people think about. Yeah.
1: And I think yeah. so. And I think that's ultimately maybe what drove me in part to come back to Canada. Um my partner's also a public school teacher and so we have this long like discussion. I was very excited to be in Michigan, not only because of my head and dreaming close to family, but it was a really amazing department in political philosophy. So career-wise, it was a great move and it was a big step up from an institution that was unranked Mm -hmm. to an institution that many people would consider top ranked or something like that. Um, So it was a big step up career-wise, but when I kept thinking about my life, like for me, my husband, my child, um, even the tenure process, frankly, like I, I... as a Canadian, I had options. It's not like yeah. I had to, to be at a good institution in Canada. I didn't have to live that life where my partner's in a public school in the United States getting paid pennies, mm-hmm. um, being asked to work unlimited hours, collecting data and standardized testing all the time, uh, when my child has to go through the SATs. Like I ha- I'm lucky because being a citizen of Canada, I have options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thought in a certain way, I mean, everyone in my life at home was just like, why aren't, come home? Like, <laughs> what are you doing in the United States? Um, and there's good reason I think for that because I think most people and there's a big difference. Like I love uh you know Michigan in some ways I bled blue and yellow, <laughs> but I think Um, People when I like now that I've been back in Canada, like averagely, truly, and I say this coming from a great love of Michigan, but people are happier here at Queens. Like averagely people are happier. People aren't stressed out about tenure. Mm -hmm. They're not stressed out about what comes after tenure. People are like, and they're people doing good work, important work, but I think people are, and I don't know if it's because of background conditions. I'm not worried about retirement. I'm not worried about my kid getting into college. I don't, don't, I'm not worried about great debt from sending my kid to college. Like all of that goes away. And then at the bonus of, hey, like tenure should be a pretty, again, humane process. So I'm also not worried about that. So that question of where to live, I mean, it is almost like, why, why would any Canadian, no offense, (laughs) 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 but why would any Canadian live in the United States? I mean, it's hard because we're also sometimes like, That's something I've really had to think about, but like I'm also affected by prestige bias. I think some of us just get obsessed with American institutions and want to be in an elite American institution. But I think that's part of the like American imperialism Mm -hmm. and the ideology that goes along with it. Um, That's not to say I would never return to the United States, but I've had to take a good look at myself to be like, why would I trade all this life stuff, you know, to to be at a really prestigious American institution? Is prestige worth everything?
0: maybe not (laughs) i was gonna ask about that so like Mm -hmm. what makes a good institution there's these rankings there's prestige does it make a difference how much of a difference does it make in your work to be at a place that's more prestigious and maybe richer wealthier versus not like i'm sure at the extremes it makes a difference but where is that balance
1: that's a good question. So in Canada, people will say, oh, they're all public institutions. There are no elite institutions. That isn't entirely true. Mm-hmm. There is an informal kind of ranking of American, of Canadian institutions that Canadians will be well aware of. So in a way, I am in a kind of, I'm still in an elite institution. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, publicly funded institutions in the United States versus those in Canada are quite different because of the funding structure. Um, and the way that like day to day operations for money work, like I can't just ask my department or the college for money if I want to do things. Whereas in Michigan, there might there maybe could be a conversation if I wanted to hold a conference. Yeah. Here, I'd have to basically apply to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for a grant. So most of our funding will come from the government through these um, these institutions. Whereas in you know at Michigan, it would have been very very different. Um, I think the main difference is that. At least it's, but it all depends on what institution you were at. Like Michigan had a pretty wealthy philosophy department within Mm -hmm. its own endowment. And so we had some teaching releases built into our kind of, you know, our regular, um, positions that I don't have here so normally it's a 2-2 teaching load at Queens it was a 2-2 load at Michigan but every other year or so you get bought out of one course Um, and there were more opportunities for internal fellowships that you would just reduce your teaching so I think one thing the big difference for me is just that it's um, being at a public institution in Canada it's pretty difficult to get out of teaching like And, and you have, I, have, I probably have more grading. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think material resources, I probably had some of the like much more access when I was at Michigan. But as a philosopher, it, it's unclear, like how much that will impact my research over the long run.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about pensions and the social safety net um, going back and forth. Like, are you part do, do you kind of keep your social security and just do you worry about that or you're just like it'll all settle in the end?
1: Um, I mean, I think (laughs) that's a good question. So we have definitely worried about it because we have a bit of pension like everywhere. (laughs) Some back in Manitoba, some in New York State, some obviously in Michigan, and now we'll be kind of starting again. Um, At least... So I think, you know, there is a certain sense where like in the next, like we've obviously just moved here, but there is this feeling of urgency. Like we want to make sure that we're deciding wherever it is we're going to stay forever that we kind of decide in the next few years so that we can just really start contributing to our pension and saving for what we need. Um, So I do think it's something now that I actually think about a lot more, whereas until, I don't think until very recently had I really sat down and thought about those things.
0: I know some American scholars who have moved to Canada and are very excited about it one of them was <laughs> surprised by the number of strikes like there'd be a strike and he's like all of our admins are on strike he's like what's happening and so can you talk a little bit about like strikes as a way of life for i don't know if it very <laughs> different parts of the country <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I was in, maybe when I was in my first or second year of college, there was a month long strike. So, and and I mean, for me, it didn't matter because I was in the beginning of my degree, but for those who are looking to graduate, like this could be a big deal, right? So I think, I mean, but that's that's part of the punch, right? That you get, like you need that kind of an impact, otherwise a strike isn't effective. So I think you're right. There is a kind of strike culture right now. uh, Actually, the high school board, like in, well, I guess in Ontario, the teachers like are striking. Mm -hmm. They just had a strike on Wednesday a, a one-day strike to kind of send a signal. Yeah. Uh, there's a good chance the elementary school board is going to strike as well. Our union, which is the Queens University Faculty Association, you know, was supposed to join the strike in solidarity uh-huh. on Wednesday. Um, so you're right. Striking is very much a way of life, I think, for educators here. But um, being pretty left-leaning and very supportive of unions, I actually, uh, constantly being in Michigan, thought about Like how important it would have been for the teachers, even in a place like Ann Arbor, which comparably probably pays better than many other places for public school teachers. But how important that right to strike is, because without it, you have nothing to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Um, So here as a result, teachers' pensions in Ontario are are some of the best pensions for like any job in Canada. Um, And the benefits and and the annual pay scale is very, very, you know, good. So I think that that's because Mm -hmm. of the ability to strike. Um, you can't take the teachers for granted. Yeah, you can't take the teachers for granted in the same way when, when when you actually go through missing them when they're striking. So I think it's a good thing.
0: We want to hear from you. What do you think of this episode? Tell us about your experience as an academe. You can reach us on Twitter at Academes Podcast, by email at Podcast at gmail.com, or please leave us a voicemail at 919 666 7301. And if you like what you hear, read us on your favorite podcast app. It'll help people find us. I am curious about your success kind of on the job market, moving universities. And there are different reasons behind it. But I think a lot of the women that we talk to feel like getting a competing offer, is one of their only options for leverage in the US Um, but they feel hesitant about going out and getting a competing offer or you know worried about backlash because sometimes you know you're told to do this but then people um, feel defensive when you do do it and so there's all these weird dynamics around this and so I don't know if you could share some perspectives on applying for other jobs when you have a job and what you think about those dynamics.
1: Oh, it's so true. I think that's such a difficult thing, but I think they're generational differences. Mm -hmm. So I do think that the old guard has always traditionally, especially women of color who fought to stay in the profession and and are now seniors are giving advice. I've had this advice myself, you know, that you should be very careful about applying for other jobs, especially as a woman of color, the reputation you would get, especially because you've already jumped around from so many different jobs. And I took that you know advice to be coming from a very good, sincere, caring place. Mm -hmm. But I also thought, well, why should not I do that? <laughs> is it because of institutional loyalty? If we were living in a fair and just world, an institution would be paying me how much I actually should be getting. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't live in a fair and just world. People should just get what they should be get, like they should be getting, but we don't. So we have to fight for it. And you're right. Oftentimes, the only way to get a, 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 like a salary increase in the United States is to get a competing offer. So I do think that that's an unfortunate truth. But I think we know this now. Mm-hmm. So I think when I talk to people around the assistant and the associate level. I'm, I mean, people have always like given me the advice from people from those positions. Um, to always just apply. If someone's trying to recruit you, mm-hmm. let them recruit you and then see what happens. Yeah. Um, I think that's good advice, but I think it comes, we have to recognize that it probably does as women of color, it probably does come at a cost. It might look, make us look academically promiscuous. Mm-hmm. Um, like we can't settle down or make a commitment or that we're always trying to get more, um, or uppity. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I personally yeah. always worried about that. It's making, going to make me seem really uppity that I'm just trying to look at these other places, um, or look for other positions. And that's something I would still worry about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the way around that is, but I do think there are generational changes because we're having this conversation publicly. People know what women are up against. And I don't think we judge women. I don't anyways. And I don't think as many younger women judge other women for repeatedly going on the market until they find their dream job, Mm -hmm. whatever that may
0: be. Good to know. Um, I listen to you again on myisha cherry's podcast and you talked about falling in love with philosophy when you took a course for non-majors i think um are you still in love with the teaching of philosophy and like how do you find (laughs) teaching
1: yeah i still love to teach philosophy i think um I'm trying to think why. I think one of the things, I don't know, and this is maybe a bit vain, but one of the things I've always loved about undergraduate teaching is When you're teaching like ethics, whether it's about poverty or animal rights or race, there are these aha moments. Mm. And those are the moments where I live for, where there's a kind of conversion. And uh, that like I live and like die for that moment. It doesn't happen every semester. It doesn't happen all the time. But when it happens, I mean, those are the moments that really stick with me. Um, And I I like those are the reasons that I love to teach. But I think the other thing is I've always loved the performative aspect Mm -hmm. of teaching. I like being in front of an audience and giving a talk. So I'm happy to go and do that and get paid to do yeah. that it's, again it's like a van- it's like a project of vanity in a certain way so i'm totally like okay to admit i'm a bit narcissistic. i love it um but I, <laughs> you know but i like to be in front of an audience and like connect with people and then you know it's what is better really than getting up a couple times a week to talk about the most important. When I was at Michigan, I taught a course It was in political economy that I really thought was on the most important issues that we could talk about. Climate change, Mm -hmm. racism, uh, you know, sexism, all the very important issues and what could be better than get to talk about those things every single day. And at the level of teaching like a seminar, talking with a small group of people who deeply care as much as you do about those things. I think that's like the most rewarding aspect of teaching. So I'm still excited about that. Um, But it's not all good. Right. Right. Like I think it's important again, as women and women of color, especially if you're teaching about race and racism or sex, sexism or, um, I think there's a lot of exhaustion. Like, I think I didn't know that because I didn't always work on race. But when I switched to working on race and teaching in the United Mm -hmm. States, especially because I came back right before Trump, um, One, I don't think I could have predicted how emotionally exhausted I was going to be all the time uh, from teaching about race and racism. And I think that's the cost of teaching about these things that really matter. Often they're also the most exhausting.
0: Yeah, I just want to sit with that. I was just at a group um, of women of color faculty and there were some awful stories about just like hostility in the classroom and classroom incivilities in addition to the fact that the material is just like heavy and like intense um do you feel like have you had classroom incivility issues or reviews that you felt like were not about your teaching but more about your identity and challenging people
1: yeah i mean i think i've actually been mostly pretty lucky in my course evaluations um I mean, I had a lot of comments, you know, about my clothing. Like, one year I wasn't dressy enough. One year I was wearing too many, like, somebody would, like, love the turtlenecks. I was in Winnipeg and I was really cold at the time. So I was always wearing their, love the turtlenecks. So I think that's really gendered and that really bothered me. Um, I think one of the comments I got after just telling you about this class that I thought was on the most important issues, okay? The class was largely white, largely male, a lot of students coming out of econ. So very different discipline than being philosophy majors. But the thing that I got in my course about was, like a number of people said that this, they felt this class didn't cover anything important. And then I had to like, I had to sit with that because I had to think, okay, as a woman of color, okay, so like sexism, racism, uh, economic inequality, climate change, like these things are on my mind all the time and strike me as being the most important things that anyone could be talking about. So I thought like, what's happening that these students think these issues aren't important, but maybe from their social position. Maybe they don't strike them as being, like, you know, as basically fairly wealthy white males. Maybe these issues aren't that pertinent to them. So that was probably one of the most disruptive set of course evaluations Mm -hmm. I had. And I think it was probably right when I was leaving Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, again, how thankful I was to come back to Canada, where I'm pretty sure everyone cares about climate change. Um, What do you think they thought was important? Like, I
0: I mean, I, I could imagine other critiques, but the idea that these issues just aren't important actually surprises me.
1: It really surprised me. And then I, I mean, obviously in some ways, maybe there were failings on my part. Maybe I didn't convey the importance. Maybe I took for granted that these were obviously important things, but maybe, maybe you can't do that, right? Maybe you have to always, you know, fight to make clear why, why what you're talking about is important. And I think, um, yeah, so I've had to grapple with that and I haven't been teaching this term. So I've been grappling it with again as I'm about to start teaching it. Like, you know, so things that seem obviously important to me may not seem obviously yeah. important to other people. And sure, there's a kind of injustice in that. Like, it's it's kind of insane that like there are a group of people who don't think these issues are important, mm-hmm. but um, that's part of the political battle that you're fighting in the United States, yeah. I think, is like convincing this group of people that these things do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's part of our, my task, I think, as a teacher to like make a better case for that. as disheartening as that is
0: it'll give you a chance to stretch I guess your pedagogy yeah Um, yeah yeah exactly uh, what kind of Mm -hmm. students do you teach like I have the impression that there are fewer philosophy majors than there were decades ago is that correct is that not
1: I don't know. I mean, there are obviously are reports of various programs shutting down philosophy majors, but I don't think that is true. Mm-hmm. I just think what has happened is that philosophy has actually started to change. Mm-hmm. So at the University of Michigan, for example, there were two interdisciplinary programs that fell under the auspices of philosophy, cognitive science and oh, philosophy, politics and economics. Mm-hmm. And enrollment was highest in those cognates. Okay. Rather than just pure philosophy majors, so I do think that in a way, philosophy is going back to its interdisciplinary roots as a way to recruit students who want interdisciplinary degrees and who want um, multiple multiple skills. So I do think what's happening is philosophy is changing. At Queens, actually, our pure majors number—I think it's one of the highest in the humanities. Oh. At Queens. So I, I don't know I think and I think I just read an article yesterday that was talking about the fact that now there is a renewed interest in the liberal arts and the humanities more broadly and I don't doubt that mm-hmm. um, in part because I think in the moment that we're in, if anything we're seeing is like science, as important as it is, isn't the only way to address the problems we're facing. Mm-hmm. Ethics has got to start mattering, I think, for example, among other things. So I do think there might be a kind of return to philosophy as people are thinking about values and how to determine what their values are and and how to fight for them. I think philosophy could actually be useful in that project.
0: When you think about starting teaching At a new institution where the student body might be different than the student body at the last institution, how do you approach that? Do you try to just teach the same material and just see how it goes? Or do you use that opportunity to change things? Like, how do you think about it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because I'm one of the courses that I'm teaching is a grad-undergrad seminar in Martin Luther King Jr.'s political philosophy. Yeah. And, like, there are a lot of things in the United States that you can take for granted. Like, everyone will have gone through high school and read the letter from Birmingham jail. That just won't be the case in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, like, certain kinds of historical stories and narratives that you can take for granted. Like, everybody will basically know about the civil rights movement, the big marches, and, and the relevant legal um, uh, like pieces of policy that came out of the civil rights movement, whereas here that wouldn't be the case. So there has to be more contextualization. Um, And then thinking about how those issues, I think this is my job, maybe now that I'm back in Canada think about this is that, you know, I might so far in this conversation, I've been sounding very idealistic about Canada, but in many ways I would argue that the race conversation is like two decades behind in Canada compared to what it is in the United States. So I do think there has been a long, (laughs) like inability to talk about race Mm -hmm. explicitly as an issue. And I do think now we're in this moment especially as things are going so awry in the United States that we too have to grapple with the fact that um, there's a lot of racism in Canada in particular um, regarding Indigenous people but immigrants and obviously Black Canadians who've been here for generations as well so um, I think it's something we're starting to talk about more Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I I mean but averagely the conversation just feels very very behind so I think for me the the thing is going to be translating maybe what I've learned from being in the United States Mm -hmm. and, and what people have talked about there and trying to make it relevant to Canadian students as they think through these issues themselves.
0: What do you think are some of the most important challenges when it comes to the place of women in philosophy?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there there have been a lot of um, I think some of my, my most important mentors have been women, uh, women who were sort of senior in the field. And I think women in philosophy have done a good job of mentoring other women. That's great. I think for me, the biggest issue isn't necessarily for women so much as it might be women of color. Mm -hmm. So I do think one thing I felt... um, I felt really prepared in a sense because there was so much mentoring around being a woman in academia, especially someone who had a child during grad school mm-hmm. um, and going on the job market with like a six month old. I felt kind of actually prepared for that because I knew a lot of women who had had children either in grad school or early before tenure. And so I had a lot of discussions about those things and I felt ready. Mm-hmm. What I didn't feel ready for was maybe how much like racism in a variety of forms that I was going to experience once I was an academic. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I was really unprepared for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and too, now that I'm more squarely focused on race, it is kind of interesting that in many ways, my discipline is still not considered real philosophy, that it's not, hmm. you know, you don't see a lot of philosophy race in the best, most elite journals, or if you look at elite departments, there might, and some of them, there might be a philosopher of race, but it isn't necessarily like every department has a philosopher of race. Mm-hmm. Um, in every department. So for me, I think in a way, I'm really interested in thinking about women. And I think a lot of my interest in diversity originally started with thinking about women in the discipline. But I think we've made a lot of progress because of the hard work of women as a collective in philosophy. And the numbers are high enough Mm -hmm. that they've collectively been able to fight for change. And I think women are very visible now in a way that they weren't. I'm not saying it's perfect, um, but there's been a lot of progress. But I think for women of color, we're still such a small, small group. There are more and more of us every day, but I think we don't yet have the numbers to really make the impact that we need to be able to make.
0: What are some of the instances of like racism that you've seen in the field and why do you think you were surprised by it?
1: Yeah. So here's an example. I think I wrote a blog post about this somewhere at some point, but like I was at actually a feminist philosophy conference and I uh, arrived late. So I didn't have a chance to get my name tag. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the conference and a few people approached me with their coats, like their arms extended (laughs) and their coats walking towards me. And they were like, you know, can you please hang these up? Um, And I thought... Okay, I've been at a lot of conferences, but never has that happened. It took me going to my one and only feminist philosophy (laughs) conference. And that's what happened, right? Because seeing a woman of color, maybe perhaps even within the feminist discipline at that time was so unusual. Nobody expected. They thought I was the staff. I wasn't a professor. So I don't think I was really prepared. I really, and I didn't have some smart like quip. I didn't, I just said, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know where you put your, I didn't have anything to say to that. There wasn't anything good to say.
0: Um, do you think it's like just in your like previous educational experience or whatever you had? In account, do you think it was just the setting of the feminist philosophy scholar or what do you think it was? I mean, so I
1: think. I don't know. I don't really. I yep. mean, it's always, I don't really know. Yeah. I do think though, like I said, I think it's a numbers issue. There just weren't that many women of color present at this conference. So I seemed like an anomaly. And then, you know, inference has got to be, well, you know, she's probably, even though I think I was like wearing a suit. It's not <laughs> like I just came in my pajamas. Like, I think I looked the part of a professor. Like I don't really remember, but you know, so I, I don't think I was doing anything out of the ordinary that would have targeted me. So I, and given that it was already a bunch of women yeah. I can't it's it's again, it's a it's always a guess as to what's going on yeah. in that moment. But I, I can't see what else it would be. It'd have to be something about me visibly. Yeah.
0: Um, I am glad to hear that you feel like you've gotten good mentorship from more senior women in the field. I think that there are um, kind of articles about how a lot of younger women will sometimes buy into narratives about older women in the field being crazy Uh, you know, I'm saying that in quotes or, you know, out of touch or whatever, just kind of these pervasive narratives often about older, powerful women. And do you feel like that's not as much of an issue generally in your field or that you just have the perspective not to fall into that?
1: I mean, so sorry, could you say the question again? Yeah, I
0: think sometimes there's like a generational split where um, younger academic women are more suspicious of older academic women and feel like they're not supportive or that they um are not with it or you know that they're deficient in some ways and there's been a recent Mm -hmm. critique that a lot of that is just the patriarchy kind of um diminishing women as they become more powerful and you know it just becomes a bad cycle
1: right i mean Oh, that's interesting because I don't think I've had that view and I don't know that in philosophy, that's like the standard talk about older women in philosophy. Yeah. What I do think is that there is a stereotype of the older generation of women being pretty ferocious. Uh Like... Um, but to me, even, I don't know if that's true, but even if it was true, it would make sense to me because philosophy being a very combative discipline, Mm -hmm. the way to survive and make it to the top is to be combative. Many of the senior people of generations ago, not just women, men as well, and I would say more so were ferocious as well. So I'm not sure what to make of that stereotype, but I don't, I just think too, there weren't enough women maybe to have roles of mentorship, you know, a certain, a few generations Mm -hmm. ago. And now I think... I think there's been a really concerted effort among women. And I say this, like, you know, a lot of the mentorship I've gotten, I was lucky to have a woman like on my committee when I was a grad student at Cornell and a very supportive chair Mm -hmm. of my committee He was a man, but, but like very progressive, maybe even would identify as a kind of feminist. So I was lucky because I had these really progressive advisors. But then after that, a number of women who weren't exactly political philosophy, more on the side of metaphysics and epistemology have been mentors for me. And I think what's great about philosophy is that these women were willing to mentor me, even though though I wasn't I didn't work in the same area as them per se um so I do think yeah I don't I don't I don't have that view at at all but Mm -hmm. I don't think that people in philosophy necessarily have that view it might be disciplinary divide on that question
0: yeah I mean it's great to hear these stories about positive mentoring experiences and that you know there are these models of really intellectually engaged and supportive women in your field um Um, is there anything else that you think might be um, interesting or that you'd like to talk about
1: Yeah, sure. I guess I was just thinking on the mentorship issue. In a lot of ways, um, I formed kind of relationships with professors during my undergraduate degree who I'm still and continue to keep contact with and who are now very good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. But I think that mentorship role starts early. I think had I not had the mentorship of those women in my undergraduate career, maybe I wouldn't have ever been able to imagine myself as a philosopher. I think maybe knowing that through their eyes, they already saw me as a junior philosopher, like it was easier to imagine myself as a philosopher in the future because Mm -hmm. they already saw me as one, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think, I think we often talk so much about mentorship at the Mm pre-tenure level. We talk about it at grad school, but I actually think there's a really important role for mentorship at the undergraduate level, especially for people you think that have a certain level of skill and you'd like to see go on in the discipline. I do think now what I do hear commonly is I have talked to a lot of uh, faculty of color over the years about the advice that they give to students, like whether to continue in academia or not. Mm -hmm. And I think because the job market is so tight, people are saying um, don't. And now I think what's sad is if someone had said that to me, I probably would have taken their advice seriously, but then I also wouldn't be in the discipline. So it's, it's, it's hard to know what kind of advice to give people. But I think if we take our roles as mentors seriously, that's a question like for undergraduate students who might be going on the profession or not, or just thinking about it. That's a question like we really have to grapple with. Like, do we advise these students to go on, especially because um, as we know, like the road can be difficult, especially for people from minority or underrepresented mm-hmm. groups, Do we encourage them to go on or not? And what's our role as mentors? Do we just give people information or do we give actual advice? I think these are all like really hard questions that I don't necessarily have answers to.
0: I think about people with backgrounds where they don't have family wealth or support, because I think just what you give up pursuing a graduate degree with the low wages and without the opportunity to kind of build wealth or a safety net can be really damaging to people um, who don't have, you know, that um class status or any kind of family financial support to fall back on would that make a difference to you if you're advising somebody?
1: Yes, a hundred percent definitely, I mean. But I think that's why it's hard because on one hand, those are the perspectives, at least I would say in philosophy, but maybe in academia, generally we need. Right. And without them, we're losing out on the knowledge that their lived experience and social position would bring to the academy that we're desperately in need of. So I, there's just such a difficult, um, that's why these big political debates that are going on right now about whether public education, you know, whether at public institutions, education should be free, really, really matter. Um, because then maybe there's a way where we don't have to, we don't have to, Give that answer that we're talking about now, which is that if you don't have enough money, don't continue on. Mm. Ideally, everybody gets funding and gets into a program at least, so they're not going into debt for grad school, which I definitely wouldn't advise. Yeah. So, so maybe the advice is something like apply to programs where you get money that'll get you give you money to go, and if you don't get it, don't go to grad school. I think that's roughly the advice I, I do generally give.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, Veena. Uh, we always wrap up by asking our guests about Is academia a dream, a game, or a scam? And so, I just want to ask you: Do you think academia is a dream, a game, or a scam?
1: Maybe it's a bit of everything. So, I think I always have the dream of reading and writing and 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 talking with people about, like I said, some of the most important issues that we face. Um, So, in that sense, it's a dream. But it's also a game because I think to be successful, to make the money that you want, and ultimately to have the kind of position that you want, you have to kind of strategize, uh, whether trying to leverage one position against another to get more money or or maybe perhaps actually to get the job that you actually want with the kinds of research, teaching, administrative components that you most strive for. Um, and then it's a sham in the sense that I think sometimes like in philosophy, I think that we being the tradition of wisdom, we think we know more than everybody else. <laughs> and I just often that's not true. Wisdom is something that you can gain without academic study I think some of the wisest people morally that I've ever known didn't have a university degree and I try to keep that in mind as someone who works on ethics that I don't have all the answers and I probably am not going to and in fact academia because of of all kinds of reasons might actually prevent me from getting those answers so I think humility is an important part of being a good a good scholar which I try to aim for that despite all my narcissism
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a great answer And I just want to say thank you, you, Dr. Meena Krishnamurthy, for talking with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely. Academes was produced by Mara
0: Bookbinder, Whitney Robinson, and me, Sarah Birkin. Our editors include Jeremiah Murphy and Molly Horrock. We get administrative support from Val Hooker and Molly Horrock. Our artwork is by Melissa Hudgens at Leafy Greens Design. We have received funding from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills, Carolina Women's Center, and the Wisdom Initiative.